The scripture readings this morning is from Acts chapter 2. We're reading verses 1 to 13. And this is closing out a series of summer sermons. And providentially, we've had four speakers, and they've all really kind of spoke about similar things, which is the church. And a lot of that was actually unplanned. It was the providence of God that all of our guest speakers chose to speak on the church. Today is a capstone message from everything that we've heard talking about the Spirit-filled church. And we're going to be reading Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. This is a reading of God's Word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and residents of Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them speaking telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does it mean? But others mocked, saying they are filled with new wine. Amen. That's a reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you so much for uh, this time that we can speak and hear about who your Holy Spirit is. And we confess that we are ignorant of so many of these things. And even if we know it, we're so far away from what it means to be spirit-filled. So I pray now that you would instruct us. We, you give us a promise that the Spirit takes the Word of God and illuminates it. And we pray now that the Spirit would convict the hearts of people as they speak these words to you. Open up our minds and our hearts through your Spirit. And help us to know the glory and beauty of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great being back at City Light. If you uh, haven't heard, I've been out this, uh, this last month. I was in uh, the top of um, June. I was in Southeast Asia. I was teaching a course for Vietnamese people, Vietnamese students, college students. I was teaching them a class for a week and uh, visiting some of the mission areas in Cambodia. It's an amazing time. Those were some just really bright and spirit-filled students. Uh, so it took me a while to get back into the swing of things. I took a couple of weeks off, but I, I'm back and I'm excited. And next week, we just heard Dre mention that we have an organizational service, and we are ordaining and installing our first elders. I'll be coming in um, officially as the senior pastor of City Light, and it's a momentous occasion. I'm really excited about that. And as our church becomes mature and organized and self-governing, uh, I wanted to preach a sermon really about what, what uh, a vision for City Light in the years to come and some of the things that we really want to see as we become a mature, self-governing church. And today I want to talk about what it means to be spirit-filled and what a spirit-filled church looks like. 
Um, you know, a lot of people know all about God the Father. If you've been to church your whole life, you understand God is our Father, the first person of the Trinity. Most of all, people understand the second person of the Trinity, who is Jesus, God in flesh, uh, the most relatable in many ways uh, person of the Trinity. But a lot of people really have a blind kind of missing spot for the Holy Spirit. That's the third person of the Trinity. And a lot of people, the Holy Spirit, the old school term for it is Holy Ghost, and that makes the Holy Spirit even more remote, like he's a ghost, like I don't even understand what that means. Who is the Holy Spirit? You know, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? And today we're going to explore that idea of who the Holy Spirit is and how the Spirit empowers and enlivens his church. So today, as we look at Acts 2, I want to look at just three ideas of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit uh, fills, brings unity to the church. The Spirit brings every member, uh, empowers every member to service, and how really ultimately the Spirit's goal and desire is to make Christ real in our life. Those three things. And I want to look at the first thing, which is the Spirit brings unity from diversity. If you never read the book of Acts, it's, it follows right after the Gospels, uh, after Jesus rose again from the dead and he ascended, before he ascended. Acts, in many, Acts was written by uh, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Acts, in many ways, is a sequel to Luke. Uh, it's the continuing story of how Jesus is with his church. In the book of Acts, in chapter 1, Jesus tells all of his followers to go to Jerusalem. At that time, there are only 120 faithful followers of Jesus left. And he tells them all, go to Jerusalem and just wait there. Just wait there. And as they are there, it says something miraculous happens. Uh, there is a festival happening at the same time. But these faithful disciples, as they are gathered together in prayer, experience something profound. And that something profound is the coming of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The Spirit is poured out. And what we want to see is that the Spirit, the idea of the Spirit is very different than what the world is about. It's very countercultural. Uh, it's very uh, powerful. It's, it, it's in many ways in opposition to how the world operates. You know, our culture today is really about self-empowerment, self-realization. Uh, my, my kids are on summer break, so I'm watching all kinds of uh, movies with my kids. And I've watched a lot of them, a lot of bad ones. Some of them are good, but I've watched a lot of kids' movies. And the most common theme in every uh, Disney, Pixar, etc. movie is this idea of uh, self-empowerment, of be you, be yourself, uh, see the beauty that is within you. It's the idea of believing in yourself, of self-discovery. And that's one of the, the themes that run all throughout our culture. Uh, and I would uh, argue that that is really the DNA. That's the cultural zeitgeist that we live in now. Uh, I have this picture of a, um, I want to show you, it's a picture of a power strip that's plugged into itself. It's a picture of a power strip plugged into itself. And I would, I would say, argue, that's kind of the idea of self-empowerment. Like, I got all the resources within myself. Like, I'm good. I got it. All the source and strength that I need, I got. 
It's this idea of self-empowerment, self-realization, discovering the superhero within you, discovering the power that is in, within you. And I would say, I would argue that that's what our cultural pr- teaches us, self-empowerment, self-realization. Well, I want to say in opposition to that, the Holy Spirit is, is very much the opposite of that. The idea of the Holy Spirit is that we need something outside of ourselves. That when left to ourself and when left to our natural tendency, there's only division, there's only war, there's only addiction, uh, there is only uh, abuse. So we, we are not enough, actually. Uh, there needs to be a power outside of ourselves that we can tap into. We need to experience the power and also the presence of God. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the power and the presence of God with us. That's something that we desperately need. And at Pentecost, what happens is that the Holy Spirit comes in its, all of its fullness. Acts chapter 2, 1 to 2 says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like the, a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. At Pentecost, as they were praying, a mighty rushing wind comes upon these 120 faithful followers. The Spirit comes like a wind. Uh, the idea of a wind is, is very important. All throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the wind. In the Old Testament, uh, wind represented life-giving power. So in ancient Israel, uh, wind blew uh, clouds from the Mediterranean Sea eastward into Palestine, and that, that wind and the, the rain clouds would water the dry land and bring life-giving fruit. Uh, in the Old Testament, Adam became a life-giving being when God breathed life into his lungs. In the book of Exodus, when God's people were cornered into the Red Sea, what did God bring? He brought wind. And the wind parted the waters so God's people can walk through. Wind was a means of salvation. It was a, mean of, a means of life-giving power. In the Old Testament, God's spirit came upon specific people, prophets like Moses, uh, judges like Samson, kings like David, and the Spirit of God brought power, brought wisdom, brought life. In the New Testament, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's one of the first things that happened as he kicks off his ministry. And because Jesus was filled with the Spirit, he did miraculous things. He experienced that presence and power of God The first thing that we want to see is that the Spirit of God is now being poured out on the church. And for what? Well, the first thing that the Spirit does is the Spirit is given to the church in its fullness to unify the church. In verse 4, this is what it says. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In Acts chapter 2, there's actually a great festival happening, the festival of Pentecost, which is a kind of a harvest festival. So there are people from the diaspora. These are Jewish people from all over the regions, thousands of people. They're gathered together for that festival. And all of a sudden, they realize something is happening. Uh, there's this mighty rushing wind, and they come and they turn to see these 120 faithful believers 
And they're all speaking in tongues which they recognize. They're people from uh, different groups. Their first group is from Mesopotamia. Second group is from Turkey. The third group is from North Africa. Fourth, they're visitors from Rome. Fifth, there are Cretans and Arabs. These are disparate people from all over. They're gathered here at their festival, and they see these 120 Christians, and each of them is speaking in their native tongue. They can't believe it. They are uh, perplexed at what is happening. And what is that miracle about? Ultimately, that miracle was a symbolic miracle. And the idea was that God was bringing together uh, a fractured human race, and he was bringing them together. If you're familiar with the Bible in Genesis chapter 11, uh, God, humanity uh, came together in opposition to God. They built this massive tower as an expression of their ego, an expression of their own intelligence in opposition to God, to be their own God. And God destroyed that temple and confused the languages. So that all the other language groups, they began to, to separate. They were divided. Nations began to form their own identities in opposition to each other. Humanity was now sprawled out. There was, they were divided. They become, became enemies with each other. So what is this Pentecost about? The Pentecost, in many ways, is the reverse of Babel. God is now bringing all the nations together. God is bringing together a fractured humanity, in, uh, and he's doing it to the, to the glory of God. God is bringing his people together. In Revelation, we see this beautiful picture. This is the end point. In many ways, this is the whole theme of the Bible. In Revelation, what we see in chapter 7 is that the sea of believers in heaven, and what kind of uh, assembly is it? It says there's, a, there's people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation And they're gathered together in worship. That's the theme of the Bible. God is bringing together a fractured humanity. And he's bringing it together to reflect his kingdom. A church, one of the visions of a church is that we want to be at City Light a cross-cultural ministry. That's one of the, the real fundamental visions of our church. You know, we live in a city in Los Angeles that's very divided by race, by class, by culture, by socioeconomics. Uh, it's tremendously diverse, but very divided. And one of the visions of our church, one of my heart's desire at City Light Church, is that we would be a church with a lot of different classes and races and cultures and people, and we would be a cross-cultural ministry that testifies to the power and beauty of God's kingdom. And that's, that's, that's what I believe is a biblical goal and one of the key visions of our church. You know, the natural tendency of anybody, including myself, is to gravitate toward people who are just like me, because it's easy. But a spirit-filled Christian, I would encourage you, is someone who likes to cross cultures, cross barriers, and to learn from different classes, different cultures. And wouldn't it be extraordinary if your friend group had people from different races, different classes of people, a different interests? Wouldn't that be an extraordinary testimony to all of your other friends and coworkers that there is something amazing and powerful in your life that I cannot explain? It's a sign of the kingdom. 
Cross-cultural ministry is a sign of the kingdom. It's part of what God is doing here at City Light. Uh, The first thing that a spirit-filled church is, is a spirit-filled church is a church in which it's deeply united. Satan's one of the main functions of Satan. Satan always seeks to divide. The Spirit's always trying to unify. Uh, A spirit-filled church is deeply together. It's deeply united, cross-class, cross-race, cross-age. And we come together in the Lord. The second thing is this. A spirit-filled church empowers every member for service. You know, after this uh, miraculous miracle of speaking in tongues, uh, all these thousands of people who are gathered who are bewildered are like asking the question, what is happening? It's a sign. They don't know the meaning of it. So Peter gets in front of now all these thousands of people who are wondering about this miracle, and he preaches a sermon. And in the sermon, he explains what is happening. In the sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 to 18, uh, Peter quotes the prophet Joel. And this is what Joel says in verse 17 18. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. The prophet Joel uh, prophesied that there's going to be the last days. The prophets are always talking about the last days, this epoch in time in which something fundamentally will change. And Joel says, you know the last times because uh, the spirit will be poured out. That word poured out uh, is used of water, that is, uh, it's a picture of rainstorm that is pouring out rain. I was just in Southeast Asia, and I experienced the monsoon season um, in Southeast Asia, and I experienced a flash flood. Like, this is water. Like, in, in Los Angeles, it just drizzles. It does not rain. In Southeast Asia, there's, like, real rain. It's like buckets of water, and within minutes, a whole street can be flooded. That's how powerful these rains are. Uh, Joel says, well, here's a picture of the end times. The Spirit's going to be poured out. We see the Spirit in certain people, like judges and kings, but there's going to be a time when the Spirit is going to flood. It's going to come down on us, on everybody, on everybody, on every single believers, and it's going to encompass young people, sons and daughters. It's going to be older people, old men will dream dreams. It's going to be male and female servants. It's going to be the different classes of people. The servants were the lowest class of people. And what Joel says is that there is going to be a time when the Spirit comes on everybody, male and female, on young and old, on every class of people. The Spirit's going to flood the church. And what Peter is saying there at Pentecost is that time is right now. This is the time when the Spirit is flooding the church and his people. Uh, today, uh, what we believe is that the Spirit has been given to the church. And one of the manifestations is that, is that every Christian, every believer is gifted to serve the church now. 
the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all God's people. In Ephesians chapter 4, I know Pastor Alex uh, spoke about this. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 4, it says that every single person who is in Christ is gifted with a gift. Some people are gifted with a gift of serving or teaching, encouragement, leadership, and mercy. Every Christian is given a spiritual gift. My question to you this morning is, do you know your spiritual gift? You know, if, you, if the Holy Spirit has flooded the church and has given every single believer a gift, do you know your spiritual gift? You know, because believe it or not, if you don't use your spiritual gift, you can lose it. Uh, the Holy Spirit has given you gifts, but if you do not use your gift, it could go out of use. If you don't start your car, if you park it in your garage and you don't turn it on for a year, guess what's going to happen? Your car is not going to start the next time uh, you try to start it out of disuse. It's going have to have to be overhauled. That's why in 1 Timothy, one of the things that Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, Paul says, stir up the gift of God within you. Uh, it's, it might be a flicker, not a flame, but stir it up. Uh, your gift might have been uh, broken down, but empower, encourage it. Use your gift uh, for the glory of God. Everyone has been given a gift. We just talked about the ordination and installation of our two elders uh, for next week. And they are John Gim and John Chang. And uh, it's interesting because the three of us are very different. John Gim is more of a thinker. He has uh, kingly gifts of planning, of wisdom, of administration. John Chang, if you, if you know John Chang, John Chang's an artist. He's more of a feeler. Uh, he has priestly gift of sim- sympathy, of generosity. He's someone who will walk with you, weep with you. Uh, for me, I have more prophetic gifts of preaching, of teaching, of equipping people to be leaders. We, we all three of us are total, not totally different, but we're very different. We have different gifts. But when we all use our gifts together, uh, we could be a ministry team. But gifts are not just given for elders, to elders, but to all God's people. Uh, one of the, the glories of the Reformation is this doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. That means that every Christian is a priest. Every Christian is gifted. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, there are some needs only you can see. There are some hands only you can hold. There are some people only you can reach. God has so uniquely gifted you that there are some people only you can reach. Some hands only you can hold that you're close, that you, you, you alone are close to. And when all God's people use their gifts in service to God, uh, that is a, a, a picture of a spirit-filled church. Well, here's the final thing. A spirit-filled church uh, finally and ultimately is centered on the work of Jesus. You know, the ultimate role of the Holy Spirit is not to draw attention to himself. The Spirit's, actually, the ultimate role of the Spirit is to turn our attention to Christ. The Spirit's work, if, you'd say, to, if I was to kind of summarize it, Spirit's role is to take everything Jesus has done and apply it to us. That's what the Spirit ultimately is doing. The Spirit's role is to make us more like Jesus Spirit's role is to take all that Jesus did for us and to bring it into our lives. 
And that's what the Spirit is doing in our life. That's why as Peter preaches this Pentecost sermon, we traditionally think of Pentecost about the Holy Spirit. But when Peter actually preaches the sermon at Pentecost, it's actually all about Jesus. This is what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in the midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for you to be held by it. Peter, essentially, at this Pentecost sermon, summarizes the gospel message. If you want to know what the gospel message is, Peter summarizes it. He says, Jesus appeared, and there was a multitude of witnesses. Probably people there had heard or seen Jesus, or definitely knew people who had seen or heard Jesus. Jesus was a historical figure. And he was attested to by all kinds of signs and miracles and wonders that a multitude of people verified. Then he talks about the death of Jesus. He says, you killed Christ, that we are complicit in the death of Jesus. He died for us. Then Peter says he resurrected from the grave. God the Father raised him, and he ascended into heaven. Peter summarizes the gospel message. And what the the Spirit's role is, is the Spirit's role is to take all of the news of Jesus and apply it to us. If we did not have the Holy Spirit... The life, death, resurrection of Jesus would be simply historical facts outside of us. Be like, this is Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. It had nothing to do with us. Something we can believe or disbelieve, take with a grain of salt, or fully believe and understand, but it still would be outside of us. What the Holy Spirit does is he takes the work of Jesus and the Spirit applies it to us. So Jesus' righteous life, when we believe on it, the Spirit applies it to us so that we are considered righteous. The Spirit takes what Jesus did on the cross, his death, and he applies it to us so that now we're forgiven. The Spirit takes the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, and the Spirit applies it to us so that when we die, one day we will also rise just like Jesus. Spirit unites us ultimately to Jesus so that we are in him. We're in Christ. The Holy Spirit takes what is Jesus. This is what John says in John 16, 14. The Spirit will glorify me. Uh, Jesus says, the Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What the Spirit does is he takes what Jesus does and he applies it to us so that it is ours in Christ. So how do we get the benefits of that? How does the Spirit do that? Uh, What do we do? This is what Peter says in that sermon, verse 37. He says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive What? The gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, if you want the Spirit, if you want all the gifts of the Spirit, if you want the Spirit to bring you to Jesus, the thing that you do is that you need to repent. What is repentance about? You know, I talked in the very beginning how the Spirit is countercultural. 
that it's all about believing in yourself. Self-empowerment. I got this. It's on me. I can believe the, uh, the glory that is within me. Self-discovery. Well, repentance is the very opposite of that, actually. Repentance is when we say, actually, I don't got this. Actually, I'm, I'm broken. I'm bankrupt in and of myself. And I don't have this. I'm actually weak and broken. I'm actually an enemy of God. I've walked away from his glory and his greatness. Repentance means simply acknowledging the brokenness within us. A lot of you uh, in Grace Prayer, she mentioned the earthquakes. A lot of you felt that. Uh, This last week, man, I experienced the big earthquake in San Francisco, and I'm accustomed to earthquakes, but that actually shook me up, those three earthquakes that I felt this week. And, you know, what are earthquakes about? You know, some of you might have anxiety about that. If you look at the Bible, actually, earthquakes, uh, there was an earthquake when Jesus was crucified. Uh, Earthquakes are often the the, uh, precursor uh, to this idea that, that something is not right. Uh, that there are things in this world that are, uh, that are not right. Uh, there is a displacement under our feet. There is an uneasiness about us. And earthquakes are symbolic of the idea that there are things that are not right, not just physically, but spiritually, psychologically, that all of us have something that is displaced in our life. And what Peter says to us is that you crucify Christ that we are actually not all right, that we're all very broken, we're very far away from our creator, and we need to turn back to God and receive his forgiveness, uh, receive the, his forgiveness that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. And, Jesus, and Peter calls us to forgiveness. He calls us to receive all the benefits of Christ that he has done for us. And Peter gives us this promise of uh, healing, restoration, and the Holy Spirit that is ours in Christ. Uh, You know, as we close, one of the things that I I really like to think about is this idea of the Holy Spirit and why even Christians need uh, to come back to this idea of what the Holy Spirit does. In Acts chapter 3, one of the interesting things that he says, Peter is preaching at the temple, and he says, and he gives this promise after preaching the gospel, that when you really receive the gospel and believe in Christ, there will be times of refreshing. He uses that phrase, times of refreshing. And that's an interesting phrase, times of refreshing. Many people can say that this is a, really a biblical idea of revival. You know, if you look throughout church history, revival comes when sleepy Christians wake up to who God is. Let me repeat that. Revival happens when sleepy Christians, they wake up to who God is. In the history of revival, that's always the case. Revival starts with people who think they're believers, and the Spirit wakes them up to the reality of who they are, of of their sin, but also the greatness and the glory of God. That's when revival happens. Revival happens when the Spirit takes hold. You might have grown up in the church your whole life. And you heard about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, but it's just facts, just something you believe. But you're not moved by that anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt you. It doesn't hit you. It's not powerful in your life anymore. Times of refreshing happens when the Holy Spirit takes these truths of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, and God makes that truth beautiful to you. 
so that you can say with uh, Paul in Galatians 2.20, when you see Jesus on the cross, you say uh, that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in Christ who loved me. He gave himself for me. And if you're a sleepy Christian, uh, what you need is that power of the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great, greatest British preachers of all time, he said this remarkable thing. He says, I would rather speak six words in the power of the Holy Spirit than to preach 70 years without the Holy Spirit. He said, I would rather preach just six words in the Holy Spirit than spend 70 years preaching without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power in our life to convict us, to lead us, to move us. The Holy Spirit is what we need uh, to get facts and make them beautiful, to take the truths of Jesus and let it move us, sweeten our affections, uh, to be led by the Spirit. So finally, one, uh, one question I'd leave with you and answer is this. Well, what can I do practically then? You know, what can I do practically uh, to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I would leave you with this one thing, one application, and that application is prayer. You know, it's no coincidence that Pentecost happened when 120 of the Christians uh, came to God in prayer. It was a prayer meeting. Pentecost happened with prayer. If you look at the history of Bibles, almost always it is through a prayer meeting. God's people in prayer. Why is that? Why is that always the context of the Holy Spirit? Well, in prayer, we are admitting that we, we don't actually have it. That's why we pray, that we're desperate, that there are, there are no resources in us. Uh, we, we confess our own emptiness and our own desperation, and we cry out to God, God, would you move in me? Not my power, but by your Spirit. Uh, would you take what is Jesus, his cross, man, and make that powerful in my life so it convicts me, it hurts me, but I am so loved. I feel your acceptance. I see the beauty. And when I see Jesus resurrected from the grave, I don't just see him. I see me. I've got the hope of glory in me because of the Spirit. I know that this is not my home. I know that one day I will be with you. And in prayer, would you ask God, God, would you make me more spirit-filled? Would you pray this week for a church, that our church would be, have all those things, that we would be a church that is diverse but united, a church in which every member is an active part of it, and a church in which the Jesus, the Christ, man, we would experience that. That wouldn't be something just we believe but it affects us on every single level. Would you pray that the Spirit would be powerfully present and poured out on our church? And when that happens, we're going to be witnesses. When the Spirit rolls into a church like that, they are witnesses because the church, the surrounding nations and the city takes notice that these are not ordinary people. And only when we get the Spirit can we be witnesses, as Jesus says in Acts 1, go out to all of the nations uh, and be my witnesses as you have that Spirit, as you are united, as you are diverse but united, as every member takes his role, as you experience the wonder of the gospel, 
Would you be my witnesses to the ends of the earth? Please join me in prayer. Let's ask God for that. Uh, Lord, we come to you this morning. Father, I do confess my own sin, my own self-sufficiency, my own desire to do ministry in my own power by my own gifts and not by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, I do confess my own prayerlessness, my own self-reliance. And I just pray, God, that you would lead me to be a leader that is so spirit-filled, that finds my first instinct is to come to you in prayer. Lord, make me a man of prayer. Make our church a people of prayer. We confess that ministry can have false fruits. And Lord, we want the real fruit of your spirit. So I pray, God, that we, you would uh, enliven our ministry, uh, that as we have diversity, in that diversity, there would be a deep unity. I pray that you would enliven and empower every single member with your Holy Spirit, that they would discover their gifts and they would use it, they would find joy as you, they use those things you've given them, that there'd be a joy in that. Father, I pray more than anything that you would help us to rejoice in Christ, that the truth of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection would be life to us. So we pray for that this morning. So I pray now as we have a time of contemplation, as we take time of communion to experience your sweetness, I pray that you would continue to minister to us. We give you thanks this morning. We lift all these things to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is the time.